Oh my god, this podcast does not make any medical claims <laughs> or offer any medical advice of any kind. Yeah, don't don't eat dilly flowers. <laughs> Welcome to episode 33 of the Lady Science Podcast. This podcast is a monthly deep dive on topics centered on women and gender in the history and popular culture of science. With you every month are the editors of Lady Science Magazine. I'm Anna Reeser, co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm Layla McNeil, the other founder and editor-in-chief of Lady Science. And I'm Rebecca Ortenberg, Lady Science's managing editor. This month, we've been thinking a lot about recipes. No doubt many of us are cooking more than ever, leaning on old standbys from Grandma's recipe box and trying new things from glossy food magazines or the pages of cheerful recipe blogs. So today, we're going to look into the history of recipes, but not just the culinary kind. In the history of science, recipes can be an invaluable source for learning about everything from medicine to alchemy. But recipes are kind of a tricky source to work with sometimes, as we'll see, and I think it's worth thinking about the different ways recipes have functioned and changed over time. So obviously this is like a hugely broad topic, so I've tried to narrow it down and I've chosen just a couple of things to focus on today. First, what do recipes tell us about how women created and circulated knowledge, especially in the early modern period? Women were not the only ones writing and using recipes, of course, but in times and places where women are not well represented in what we might term elite scientific and literary circles, Recipes are a really important form of writing and knowledge creation that women had access to. And so then the other part of this is that I'm fascinated by the various ways you can use recipes as sources to talk about the past and the limits of how you can do that and how uh, recipes can kind of reshape the way we think about the past more generally. Uh, but before we get into all that fun stuff, um, let's try uh, some old-fashioned cooking. So, to begin, I'm, I'm now, I've become like Julia Child, but for ancient cooking. Uh, to begin, let's saute a quantity of lamb in fat. Then add barley and vegetables, which need to simmer with the lamb in milk for a while. To serve, you should crumble up some barley cakes and top the stew with these, and maybe some garnish. So, that's how you make Babylonian lamb stew according to a recipe on a 4,000-year-old cuneiform tablet that Dr. Mudri al-Rashid, a historian of ancient science, posted on Twitter recently. She said this recipe, along with a few others, were used as suggestions for using up all that extra quarantine bread you've been baking. Uh, so we know that people have been writing down recipes for as long as they've been writing at all, and not just for food. Uh, much of the knowledge that we have about, say, ancient Egyptian medicine uh, comes from papyri, like the London Medical Papyrus and the Ebers Papyrus, which contain instructions and materials for making remedies from everything from the pain of childbirth to complaints of the eyes and skin. Many of these medicines involved some kind of magic spell. Uh, so, for example, there was a remedy for, quote, pain in half of the head, uh, which scholars suspect refers to what we might now call migraines. Um, and this recipe involves creating a small sculpture of a crocodile out of clay, um, perhaps with grains in its mouth, and binding it to the head of the patient with linen inscribed with the names of the gods. 
Which, frankly, given the fact that we still don't really know what the best way to, like, remedy migraines is, sure, why not? Yeah, I'm let's just give it, it a shot. <laughs> yeah, try it. Literally, science has not figured this out yet. And um, the, I mean, then, if nothing happens, you still have, like, a cool little crocodile friend. So that's... <laughs> It's true. I, I just, I really imagine a cute little crocodile statue. Uh, anyway, what is a recipe, though? Uh, the ancient Babylonians obviously would not have recognized the word we use now to describe the instead of instructions for lamb stew. Uh, the familiar understanding of what a recipe is comes from the early modern period, uh, around the 1500s or 1600s. Um, and what we now call recipes used to be called receipts. Uh, and books of recipes were commonly called books of receipts. Um, this is because recipe and receipt both come from the same Latin word, recipare, which means to receive or take. And the use of the word receipt instead of recipe persisted well into the 20th century. You can find lots of examples of cookbooks using receipts in places like eBay, where we found some from the 18, sorry, the 1980s uh, to even later. Uh, and so while many scho scholars use the term recipe in their published research about these sources, if you're doing a deep dive on recipes of the past, make sure you also use receipt in your search terms as well. And recipes are a really broad category of texts, and you can find them almost anywhere in the world and in any time period. They can be like formalized documents, um, so such as methods for making reproducible materials like medicines and pigments or industrial processes, or they can be quotidian and informal that are passed between family and neighbors. And they may cover everything from laundry to sore throats. Culinary recipes have always been a big part of the domestic lives of women in cultures where women are most often tasked with preparing food. And from the stews of the Babylonians to the jello molds of your grandmothers, uh, there are plenty of um, extant work sources out there uh, to work with. Um, but recipes and receipts, particularly in the early modern period, were merely sets of instructions, and they covered not only the preparation of foods, but also uh, the compounding of medicines, methods for making wondrous alchemical substances, soaps and other substances for washing and cleaning, and for brewing beer or making liqueurs. With the advent of printing, these became among the most widely made and used type of texts in the early modern world. And they are of special interest to us because women were as likely or even more likely to have access to and use these kinds of texts to create and codify knowledge both in public and in private. So one very famous early modern recipe book, which you can view in several places online, was called A Choice Manual or Rare and Select Secrets in Physic and Surgery, compiled by the Countess of Kent, Elizabeth Gray. And this book contains both medical and culinary recipes. And the culinary section covers, or sorry, the medical section covers just about everything you could think of from consumption to melancholy to shrunken sinews, which sounds very bad. I don't know what that is. Um, to how to treat the bite of a mad dog. Um, and so among the recipes for food, in the other section, you can find information on uh, preserving things like stone fruits and citrus, which you can do by boiling them with sugar to make jams, or cooking in them in sugar and drying them out in the oven, 
or storing them in egg white syrups, which I have no idea what that ends up tasting like. So these types of books were incredibly common and popular, and many of them were written by women. Books of receipts, like the Countess's Select Secrets, were a hugely important way that women participated in the creation and circulation of knowledge in the early modern period. The popularity of these books in the marketplace also tells us that what we might think of as intimate domestic knowledge, um, you know, making medicine for your family or your family recipes, um, that kind of knowledge was actually itself an economic product in the trade and recipe books and part of the larger commercial exchange of knowledge in the period. Historian Elaine Leong has written about how recipes show knowledge being created and shared in the early modern world. She's also observed that the everyday practices of creating, testing, revising, and distributing recipes can give us a sense of how important the culture of making things was during this time period. One person that Leong writes about is a 17th century widow named Elizabeth Frake, who left behind a notebook containing recipes, remembrances, household inventories, and reading notes from her study of popular medical texts. In Frake's notebook, uh, Leon found lists of medicine that challenged older assumptions about women's medical practice being entirely a domestic affair. As another historian, Mary Fissel, commented on Leon's study, quote, We can no longer assume that women merely plucked herbs from the garden and made simple domestic remedies in their kitchens, in some way insulated from the larger concerns of the market. Surprise! Women live in the world. <laughs> I don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> they interact with other human beings. Some of them mm. outside the walls of their homes. Not some anymore. Of them, even men. I mean, well, no. Uh, the good old days of the 17th century, women could go outside. Uh. <laughs> hey, look, we're reviving the long 19th century walk through like the sad, quiet moor now. So. <laughs> we're taking lots of turns around the room. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, uh, Leong's study required uh, a pretty cool bit of historical sleuthing, my jokes aside. Uh, she compared the lists of medicines in the notebook along with the household inventories um, to Freak's recipes and determined which medicines she regularly concocted and in what quantities. Um, can I say, this is the kind of historical research that I both love and know I could never, ever do because I have no patience. <laughs> and I just, I, I read yeah, these kinds of things and I'm like, oh my god, your brain works differently than mine, which is great. <laughs> uh, anyway, many of the things that uh, Frake made herself from family recipes, um, but she also used recipes and information that she found in popular medical books and pharmacopoeia. Um, so here's an excerpt from Leung's description of these notebooks that really shows how Frake was gathering recipes from different sources and even crediting where she got them. So here we go. Elizabeth made up batches of palsy water from her grandmother's recipe, syrup of saffron from a recipe attributed to her sister Frances Norton, and a variety of other recipes including hot surfeit water, ague water, aqua mirabolus, Eliza Saladus, syrup of turnips, oppy water, red streak cider, white mead, and cowslip wine. The final match, cowslip wine, was given to Frake by Mr. Smith of Winch, a cleric who provided medical care for her and her husband on several occasions. End quote. Syrup of turnips sounds disgusting. 
<laughs> it sounds terrible. <laughs> I'd try it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I would try any of these things, but yeah, yeah. just the ones probably. <laughs> yeah, but for, uh, like a fresh made batch, not like a bottle of turnip syrup they excavated from the remains of Frank's house or something. <laughs> like that dude on Antique Roadshow or whatever that drank that witch's bottle that oh, he God. thought was an old bottle of port. Oh no! And, like and urine in it. it. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, I mean seriously. When in doubt, a historical bottle it has either urine or mercury in it. Don't drink it. <laughs> yeah, man. Or Don't drink the forbidden turnip syrup. <laughs> All of these things probably had opiates in them as well. Let's not forget. Yeah. <laughs> um, so many of the recipes that household medicine makers use required pre-prepared ingredients, like distilled waters of herbs, that would have been purchased. According to one contemporary writer, you could do this at home, but if you didn't have, if you didn't quote, have the convenience of distilling them, you may buy them from the apothecaries at a shilling a pint. Ina Garden approved. (laughs) (laughs) If you don't have, if you don't have access to homemade turnip syrup, store-bought is fine. (laughs) (laughs) It does, it is, it is kind of amazing how, like, that is literally passed down through through like recipes to the modern day where some where people are like you should really make this yourself but store pot is fine <laughs> it's fine but i'm judging you from the like deep dusty annals of time so, just so you know yeah. uh so freak was uh plugged into her local commercial and social networks of medical knowledge in ways that show she was doing something much more than just picking herbs and making these medicines was not always simple. The combination of pre-processed and homemade ingredients meant market trips, and the recipes themselves were often complex and time-consuming. For Frick's saffron syrup, for example, quote, one first steeps saffron in aniseed water for 20 days, shaking the stopped bottle once a day. One then adds additional ingredients, boils the liquid into a syrup, strains the syrup, and simmers this final syrup for a while. The product is finally left to cool in a silver basin before being bottled, end quote. So this requires a lot of complex knowledge and skills and time and patience. <laughs> um, Freak and other household medicine makers did not only make medicines for their families, but often for neighbors and community members. And medicine preparation was often an important part of the charity work women engaged in. Um this kind of reminds me of our discussion about Lydia Pinkham, who yes. was compounding her own medicines, and um, I think kind of speaks to this idea that women weren't just doing this like within their homes and passing it to their families and neighbors, but like plugged into some like economic, larger economic, you know, trend and force that was going on too. Yeah, I love the idea that like. <laughs> I don't know, that somehow women who are living in, like, cities and towns that we know in this period have, like, a certain, like, economy and, uh, you know, a certain, like, robust sort of social life that, like, women who lived in these towns couldn't possibly be, like, go you know, participating in all that. That they're somehow just, like, cloistered in their house with their little garden picking their herbs. Uh, and there's just, like no way that they were, like, important participants in, like, a larger market for 
these products. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is this is one of those things that I 100% blame the Victorians for. The things <laughs> I blame the Victorians for is a very long list. Yeah, um, well. <laughs> but, I mean, but but there is this whole idea of that I feel like I then have to explain to various people, and I yell about a lot uh, to people I know who really don't care, um, about, like, women's roles like before the victorian period and even during the victorian period but like there's this moment where like there's the angel of the house and like the idea of women being delicate and inside becomes at least the ideal and you have to be like no the that wasn't the ideal before like 1850 so like the idea of woman like being out and about and like making stuff and talking to the apothecary was not like crazy and immoral um and but we get so stuck on this idea that like what good women did was based on this victorian idea um that then we kind of even historians at a certain point had to like relearn to like oh right things were different in before that and women had different like positions in the world yeah and like this idea like this modern idea or modern iteration of like a housewife like is a victorian phenomena like before that um you know, especially before, like, industrial capitalism and stuff like that, when you had a clearer separation of, like, public and private life, like, women were not just confined to their homes in this, like, angel of the house, (laughs) you know, domestic goddess type of way, that it was a very different way of caring for a home than what we associate with, like, the 19th and 20th century. Yeah, and that idea that, like, well, even if, you know, there's sort of, like, these, like, gradated steps of the way the historiography evolves about that stuff, so that, like, even if women are making medicine or buying it from the apothecary, then they're only using it to treat their own family, but that presumes, like, still some of these, like, vestiges of, like, women being confined to home and family life and not being involved with their community, their larger community in any way, but we have plenty of evidence that, like, women were doing that and were speaking to their neighbors and going around and helping each other and yeah um it just takes like it's i it's like kind of excruciating (laughs) how long it seems to like we had to go one tiny step at a time toward under toward like excavating our way through this victorian idea back to something that is like it's not even we're like rediscovering it or anything it's like there in the sources people just like applied their assumptions to it to so we didn't have to talk about it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And, like, another area where we see, like, women being tapped into, like, their community in a way that deals with, like, recipes and stuff is, like, the brewing of beer um, and how that was largely a female enterprise for a very long time and in lots of different places around the world until it started to make too much money. <laughs> how they were just a little too <laughs> tapped into uh, the economic market, I guess. Uh, and, you know... Um, men took over kind of from there but like um i think that there's just all of these different ways that women were plugged into our larger community and um we've just had like a large cultural amnesia <laughs> about the ways women have participated in all all aspects of life yeah it's just that like life was frankly life was hard and it was all hands on deck <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> Like, I feel like that's just part of it, is that, like, life was weird and messy and interconnected, and we didn't have, um, for better and worse, lots of luxuries, and, like, everyone had to try hard to make sure that you survived, because it 
was hard. Um, and it's also worth saying that, you know, in the, the 19th century angel of the house and the 20th century domestic housewife were also very, like, plugged in. But it was overlaid with this, like, assumption that, like, they were supposed to pretend that wasn't the case. Uh-huh. Um, and what makes, like, this period, I think, different is that that that, oh, that overlaid, my feeling is that, my sense is that that overlaid assumption wasn't there yet. And so it's very obvious in the text, as you say. Yeah. So Frank and other household medicine makers were just one category of recipe users. And because of how widespread recipes were and are, and how varied their uses are, there are lots of other directions you might take the study of receipts. And I mean, like, lots. <laughs> so one that I I found particularly fascinating, and one that is, it's one of those things where I read it and I was like, of course, of course you could do that, um, is what recipes can tell us about the history of the senses. Yes. So obviously studying culinary recipes can tell us about what people in the past thought was tasty. But we can also study other kinds of recipes to learn about how people sense their world. So recipes for cleaning products like wash balls can tell us about what people, how people smelled the world and what they thought were good or clean smells. Um, In Susan North's book, Sweet and Clean, Bodies and Clothes in Early Modern England, she writes about how reading recipes for soaps used to clean clothes can tell us something about what early modern people thought clean smelled like, which is one of those things that like we all know intuitively what clean smells like, but like why do we think it smelled like why do we think, you know, Tide or whatever smells clean? There yeah. is like a whole cultural history of that. I don't know, I got so excited. So, yeah. you know, if you scoop some clothes up off the floor for the smell test in the early modern period and they smelled like cloves, camphor, or musk, um, which were all things commonly added to laundry soap, then they were probably clean. And then, as now, if they smelled like B.O., they probably were not clean. (laughs) (laughs) So, recipes can also tell us things like uh, people's personal grooming habits and what was considered attractive and healthy. So, in a culture that was very concerned about the way that odors might contribute to disease... I believe we've talked about that before. Um, English hairdressers in the early modern period made and sold various kinds of scented oils for men's beards that you would just kind of mush in there and then the bad disease vapor couldn't get into your nose, I guess. (laughs) Um, So one commenter recommended that medical students should use these products because Having a perfumed beard was said to, quote, greatly comfort the brain and relieve the senses. And I don't have a beard to oil, but boy, I would love to have my brain comforted <laughs> right now. <laughs> that sounds great. That does sound great. I So, yeah, um, early, early in uh, pandemic times, um, I bought a bunch of candles and uh, yes. my wife was like, what are you going to do? What do you think you're doing? <laughs> Do you think you're getting the bad odors will will save you? And I'm like, shut up. <laughs> I was cooking a pizza the other night and, pl- and like had a vanilla candle going. And I swear I thought for a second that I was making cake and I was super confused. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'll stop with my tangent. What's going on over there, Rebecca? <laughs> you doing It's getting okay? weird in quarantine. <laughs> it's getting weird. It's getting weird. Anyway... <laughs> Recipes can be tricky sources, however. 
Uh, we've talked about food technology and women's labor uh, in the magazine and on the podcast before. And one thing we always try to keep in mind is that recipes can only tell us what the recipe itself said to do, not what the user of the recipe actually did. Jessamine Newhouse uh, makes this point in her work on 1950s cookbooks, noting that people definitely resisted the ways prescriptive liter literature like recipes told them to behave, and it's worth trying to recover that resistance. Um, and it's also useful to look at the prescriptive literature on its face um, for what it can tell us about the creation of norms. Uh, and this is complicated when we bring gender into the equation, uh, isn't it always? Um, if we prattle on about what our sources say housewives were supposed to do at any given time, using recipes or any other prescriptive sources, um, aren't we just reinforcing the gender norms created by those texts? Uh, what about the men who didn't put sweet-smelling oil in their beards? Is that the equivalent of not wearing a, ma a man not wearing a mask right now? <laughs> <laughs> not putting your beard oil in to prevent disease? Mm. Uh, yeah, maybe. Uh, but were they bucking a gendered fashion um, or a public health recommendation? Like, is this, yeah. Um, or were they just allergic to cloves? And I'm sure some of them probably just like their stinky beards. <laughs> yeah, they probably thought they probably thought it smelled good. They probably hated clothes or whatever. <laughs> I would imagine that these sources, like, like you, recipes, can tell us a lot also about like grooming habits and stuff like that, but also like fashion as well. Like looking at like recipes for different dyes. Um, and things like that, that's also really interesting, which would be, like, a very regional type of study. Um, what was available and used for pigments and dyes in some areas, but not in others. And, you know, how that changes over time as well. I was thinking about this the other day in, like, a contemporary context. Um, because I keep, for some reason, I keep getting advertisements for um, this, like, paint startup that is sure. making like house paint in like cool trendy colors but there's something like special about it where it does it like is eco-friendly or something like I don't know how eco-friendly you can make latex house paint but that it doesn't like outgas or something like that that there's like they have a particular formula not only for the colors that they have that are like exclusive and that's actually there if I'll see if I can find there's a great article in the New Yorker I think about like very expensive like bespoke paint companies and like how they come up with their paint recipes and protect them and stuff but just like the like you're saying Layla about like fashion but like so the dig like the decor of a certain time and place and what kinds of pigments were available to paint your house and like um if you have a like a lapis lazuli pigment that's very expensive then your whole palace is blue because that's <laughs> how you show off that you're you know very expensive um, but then also like, what are the, like, what kind of binders are available to make paint out of? And, uh, I don't know. Jessamine Newhouse's study of these cookbooks, we've talked about it before. Basically what she says is like, she studies all of these, these cookbooks that we love that have like the hot dog crown roast and all of these like sculpted, um, congealed salads and this very like elaborate food that you're you know, the cookbooks say you're supposed to do all of this to, like, uh, impress your family and your dinner party guests or whatever. And basically her point is, like, 
Yeah, you're, the cookbook says you're supposed to do it, but the cookbook's like written by like the Jello company and is trying to sell you on the idea of making like a elaborate Jello sculpture for your dinner party. And plenty of people just did not <laughs> care about that and didn't do it. And there were some people who would have been horrified by the idea of making a hot dog crown roast and would never do such a thing. So just, you know, thinking through like the larger context of the recipe and who's using it and why, and whether they're using it as directed or not. Um, the only, the other example that I had with, from my own research, and I just really want to mention this book because I love it, is I found a um, cookbook assembled by the sisters of the Temple Beth Israel in Houston, um, who were all Jewish women who were married to or worked themselves at NASA. Uh, in the 60s and so they made this really amazing like space themed community cookbook and it's like really great it's like very it's like they had it like bound in like hardcover it's not one of those like you know like coil bound community cookbooks that I have a bunch of <laughs> like it's really professionally done and has like they hired an illustrator to do all of these like um, interstitial things for the sections um, so like that kind of source not only did that tell me, you know, there's a community of Jewish women in Houston who are connected with NASA, who attend this temple. There's a picture of the temple on the back of the cookbook. Uh, there's this illustrator who I could look up who may have been working on other space-related projects if they lived in Houston. That might be an interesting lead and then you can look, then you can, even before you like get into the recipes themselves, there's like the names of the uh, people who contributed them are in the book. So you could use that to look up people who are in this community that I'm studying. And then, you know, you can also look at the content of the recipes themselves, the drawings. There's just like, it's like a whole huge, dense, uh, kind of knot of different leads and threads that you could follow. And one of the things I like about cookbooks in that sense as like nodes or starting points or sources is that like generally you're starting with like women, either what women are supposed to do or a group of women or, you know, gendered activities themselves. So like it's just for me a good place to like dive into something. Yeah, one of the things I bits that we talked about earlier that I love that I think speaks to this is uh is is the fact that in Elaine Leong's uh work she's talking about also the fact that there are these recipes but then there are the people that the woman got the recipes from and and so in these in these sets of re in these recipe books uh you do you networks are named and um I and like even you think about like in printed recipe books, uh, the way that like you leave marginalia or you like and sometimes you say even like this is how mom did it or whatever, or um even like today. Uh and just because recipes are and continue to be, I think yeah, they have these personal and intimate things. The fact that like community cookbooks I've been a part of so many different social movements. Um, whether like political or just like a community of people who are maybe otherwise marginalized in like other parts of the um, how they move through the world, um, 
says something about like the idea of of recipes as like yeah a place for for nodes to go off of yeah that's super cool that sounds amazing (laughs) that cookbook yeah i'll maybe i will take some pictures and we can dump them in the bottom of the show notes because i just always want to show people because it's the illustrations are extremely cute so the study of recipes as i think we have covered is uh its own subspecialty among historians of science, medicine, and knowledge. And so there are, like, a lot of excellent resources on this and, like, really good, engaging, interesting books, like the one about clean smells. Um, And so I'll I'll put some reading recommendations as well in the show notes. I did want to flag up just a couple of cool online resources in particular if you're interested in this. The recipes project was put together by a group of scholars who work on these sources, and it's basically a collective blog, um, but it's really cleverly organized into these kind of thematic series that really give you an idea of how far recipes can take you in learning about the past. So that covers all kinds of things from um, art technology, like we talked about recipes for pigments and paints, things like that, to a whole section on Russian recipes. There's a series on the relationship between recipes and temperature and measuring temperature. So that's something to look into if any of this is interesting to you and then more reading recommendations in the show notes. So to wrap up, I think we will leave you all with the Countess of Kent's tried and true remedy for melancholy in the hopes that it and this podcast might cheer you up just a little bit in these frankly wild times (laughs) so take one spoonful of gilly flowers the weight of seven barley corns of beaver stone bruise it as fine as flour and so put it into two spoonfuls of syrup of gilly flowers and take it four hours after supper or else four hours after dinner this will cheer the heart what are gilly Aww. flowers? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I don't know what any of those things are. Probably something you shouldn't eat. I mean, I, there's a lot of a lot of stuff in this old these old recipes that you probably should not consume or put on your person. <laughs> Lots of mercury. Yeah. Like a lot of mercury. <laughs> um, it is. So I asked the internet. Uh, gilly flower is a carnation. Oh. Aren't carnations poisonous? I think Eat? they are. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, boy. Okay. Well, Don't do anyway. this. I just liked the part that said this will cheer your heart at the end. Okay? I was just trying to be nice. <laughs> now we're going to get people poisoned. Don't eat carnations. Anyway, if you like this episode today, <laughs> leave us a reading and a review on Apple Podcasts so that new listeners can find us. Questions about any of the segments today? Tweet us at, at LadyXScience or hashtag LadySciPod. For show notes and episode transcripts, visit LadyScience.com. We are an independent magazine and we depend on the support from our readers and listeners. You can support us through a monthly donation with Patreon or through one-time donations. Just visit LadyScience.com donate. And until next time, you can find us on Facebook at, at LadyScienceMag and on Twitter and Instagram at, at LadyXScience. Ta-da!